SEP Fanfic Readings presents What the Room Requires by Olivia Reckham. Chapter 20. I held up well. I really did. Considering. I clung closely to Harry and Ron, even more than before. And I only collapsed crying into Harry's arms twice. He was so good about it. So patient. Especially when I couldn't tell him the reason. However, at one point, in his distress and worry, he just threw out a guess. He asked me if I was in love with someone. I just burst into tears, but he simply held on to me, tight, told me it would all be okay in the end, and never asked about it after that. Poor Ron was just befuddled at my sudden attacks of grief and frustration, so I tried to control myself when he was around. When I succeeded in that, I took comfort in his easy, uncomplicated company. Being forced to lighten my mood really did help me forget, for bits of time at least. Neither of my friends realized how desperately I needed their comfort, and on a daily basis because I had to see him every day. Every day, Draco Malfoy was there. I had never realized before how often our paths routinely had occasion to cross, whether it was going to classes, eating dinner, studying in the library, or heading to the dormitories. I could feel his presence in the room, like a flame at the other end of a hall, feel the silence lengthening between us. And I couldn't talk to him, not a word. Because if I spoke to him in the presence of Pansy, Crab, Blaze, or Goyle, Drago would be forced to answer me cruelly. I would not do that to myself, or to him, for that matter. I couldn't bear it, and I did not dare try to find a way to meet him secretly. His expression was always closed. He never met my eyes, and everything about his bearing forbade me from even coming near him. And so we walked, and worked, and studied, and ate, each as if the other did not exist, and never had. All I did every once in a long while, when I was certain no one was paying attention to me, was look at him, from a distance. My eyes traced the lines and curves and angles of his face, and I studied the way the light reflected off his limitless blue eyes. For a while, this kept my misery at bay. Until one afternoon, when all of us were outside enjoying an uncommonly temperate day. Almost all the sixth-years were outside in the courtyard, lounging, reading, or playing games. Harry and Ron were busy tossing a cricket ball back and forth, and I was sitting in the cool stone crook of a window, pretending to do an assignment while I watched Draco and Pansy reclining on the grass, playing chess. I ached so badly I could hardly breathe. I gripped my book with ice-cold fingers because I remembered that expression, the way he draped his forefinger across his chin, the way his dark eyebrows came together in concentration. But that ache was nothing compared to what came next. Pansy kissed him. I don't know what prompted it. I had taken a moment to glance down at my book, and then when I looked up back up, Draco lifted his face to the sunlight, and she leaned in and captured his lips with hers. And he didn't pull back. I didn't wait to see if he reciprocated. I slammed my book shut, got up, and stormed out to visit Hagrid. I was a mess by the time that I knocked on his door. When he opened the door and saw my face, Hagrid tried to be helpful by standing right there on the doorstep and asking me a million questions. Finally, I just lied that I had received a terrible grade on a dark arts paper one that I had slaved over, and so Hagrid commenced with complaining about Professor Snape's ridiculous grading scale and invited me in for tea. I was gratefully distracted as I sat on one of his huge chairs with my hands encircling a massive cup. Watching the bright, merry fire and listening to Hagrid eagerly tell me about the newest beast that had had him fascinated, an Ashwinder, which was a serpent that spread fire. I smiled to myself, absently noting that Hagrid enjoyed fire-creating beasts the most for some reason. I wanted to stay there all afternoon. Hagrid was so cheerful and determined to lift my spirits, and a couple of times almost got me to laugh. But I couldn't stay. 
Dark clouds gathered, rolling over the hills, and at last the gentle giant sadly but firmly advised that I head back to the castle before it started to rain. I got up, thanked him for the tea, stepped out the door, and did as he said. But I didn't make it. I was caught in the downpour, instantly drenched. I didn't hurry. I put a protection charm on my book and sloshed head down back to the gate. I almost didn't see him until I had nearly passed him. I have a message for you, Granger. I jerked to a halt. Draco stood under an overhang off to my right. My eyes flew to his face. He was sneering at me and his voice was hard. But he was wet too, like he had been waiting for me when it started to rain. I glanced around. I didn't see anyone, but someone must be nearby or he wouldn't be wearing that expression. What is it? I asked, trying not to shiver as I dripped on the stones. How should I know? He retorted. Professor Snape just told me to deliver this. I wouldn't be talking to you otherwise. And he held out a small, rolled-up piece of parchment. I took it from him, biting back a thank you, and ducked my head. Snape says he would like you to read it now, he practically ordered. It's urgent. I will, I murmured. And don't lose it, he warned. I know how feeble you are at finding stuff that gets lost. His voice broke, and my head came up. For just an instant I met his eyes, and what I saw in his sapphire gaze struck me through the heart. But before I could speak, he turned and swept back inside, each step more confident than the one before. I watched him go, my eyes lingering on his every movement, his every step. Only when he had vanished around the corner, and I had managed to start myself breathing again, did I slip into a shadowed, sheltered corner and unroll the parchment. I blinked. It was not Professor Snape's handwriting. It had to be Draco's. And all it said was, There is a book on reserve for you at the library, held in your name, by the permission of Severus Snape. Apparisium. I rolled the paper back up, my hands trembling, and put it in my pocket. Then I promptly decided to skip my next class, dry off, and go straight to the library. Madam Pince, I said very quietly. The pointy-faced, tight-lipped witch gazed up from the ledger on her crowded desk and eyed me narrowly. Miss Granger, she replied flatly. I glanced around the long, tall, mostly deserted library, the silent, perfect stacks of books and the motes of dust floating through the air. I took a breath. I always loved this way it smelled in here, musty, of wood and parchment, restful, thoughtful, ancient. I turned back to the librarian, whose sharp look was sharpening further. I believe, I said, keeping my voice to the exact low volume she favored, that Professor Snape reserved a book in my name. She blinked. Indeed, she said, then turned aside to the perfect stacks of books on a side table. Her spindly fingers flitted down the spines, then paused next to the one in the middle of the pile. Very carefully, she slid it out, then held it in both hands like it was made of porcelain. She glanced up at me and arched a thin eyebrow. Hmm. Interesting that Professor Snape should have reserved this for you. This is usually a book kept in the reserve for the Muggle Studies class, but it has not been used therein for several years merely because I could not stand the abuse the books were taking. A fleck of sorrow entered her voice. Not many copies of this book survived the brutal rigors of that horde of savages. I waited patiently and did not hold my hand out for the book. I knew, by the way she grasped it, she was not finished speaking. She eyed me askance. This is a first edition, Miss Granger, the last one in this library. There are wizards and muggles alike that would pay a fortune to take it and place it in a museum. But... She glanced down at it, and miraculously, I saw her countenance soften. But far be it from me to deprive a worthy student of the work of Jane Austen. I stiffened. Madame Pince slowly extended the faded, beaten book to me. I carefully closed my fingers around the binding, and gazed down at the cover to read the title. 
persuasion. My throat closed. I will permit you to borrow the book for three days. Only three, Madame Bent said. But if you, if you enjoy it and you wish to read it again, she cleared her throat, began straightening her papers. You may bring it back. I will look over it to make certain it has not been damaged, and you may borrow it again. Thank you very much, Madame Pince, I said softly. I will take very, very good care of it. Make certain you do, she warned. I will, I promise, I said, then tucked it carefully against my chest and headed to my room. I kicked off my shoes, jumped on my squeaky bed, and closed the curtains around me, leaving only a slight gap for the sunlight to come through. No one else was in the room, but I didn't know how long it would be until the class period was over, and I didn't want to be interrupted. My heart was beating so fast that my breathing started to shorten. Carefully, very carefully, I set the book down on my pillow in the shaft of sunlight and opened the front cover. My breath caught for a moment. I was holding a first edition Jane Austen. I pulled out the little piece of parchment, unrolled it, and read the writing again, my eyes fixed on the spell written at the bottom. Aparicium. I believed I knew it. It was the spell for revealing invisible ink. Slowly, I pulled out my wand, pointed it at the book, and desperately hoping it would not cause it to burst into flames or some such, whispered the spell. Aparicium. I lowered my wand. Now I just had to carefully flip through the pages and find whatever it was that had been hidden. Taking a deep breath, I began trying not to read the story as I went, for I knew that it would slow me down. It took me enough time as it was, as I was carefully scanning the pages, searching for any checkmark or underlinings or stars or notes. There. A whole passage underlined with light green ink. Ink that was fading toward invisibility again. But I caught all of the passage. Caught it and absorbed it and wrapped my arms around myself to try to contain the savage ache in my chest. There could have been no two hearts so open, no tastes so similar, no feelings so in unison, no countenance so beloved. Now they were as strangers, nay, worse than strangers, for they could never become acquainted. It was a perpetual estrangement. I knew what was going on. Draco was trying to communicate with me in a way that was untraceable, using professors and librarians and invisible ink and words that were not his to try to get a message to me. And despite all those screens, I was able to understand. He was talking about our situation, what we had to live through and fight through every day since the moment we fell back through the door of that room. But I wasn't going around kissing people. He wasn't sitting in his room mourning the fact that he had seen me snogging Ron or Harry. Furious jealousy, as well as needles of directionless pain, clenched my muscles, and I bowed my head over this book, determined not to cry and ruin the pages. When at last I opened my eyes, the green ink was invisible once more. I read the passage again, reread it, and took out my diary and pen and copied Austin's words down there. It wouldn't hurt anything, I was sure even Professor Dumbledore wouldn't fault me. Then I turned back to the beginning to start reading the entire story, searching for a way to answer Draco, praying that somehow Miss Austin would be able to articulate what I felt when I was completely helpless to do so on my own. I finished the entire novel in two days. I didn't neglect my homework, and I didn't spend as much time on it as I usually did. And any free time I had would find me curled up by the fire in the common room, or on my bed, reading. Harry and Ron often joined me when I sat by the fire, and Harry asked what I was reading. Ron remained politely uninterested, but Harry did ask me questions about the plot, and I wound up telling him a lot of the storyline. He listened well, and talking about it with him made me feel less alone. At last, when I finished it, 
I borrowed some invisible ink from Ron. He had some brilliant red stuff that would work excellently. He had gotten it from his brothers. Then I sneaked away to my room, pulled the curtains of the bed around myself, lit my wand, and found the exact place I needed. Silently begging Miss Austin, and Madame Pince, to forgive me, I laid a thin line of red invisible ink below a single line. Unjust I may have been, weak and resentful I have been, but never inconstant. I sat back and watched the ink fade away into nothing. I waited still longer and blew on it to make certain that the ink wouldn't get on the opposite page and confuse him. Then I shut it, informed my plans once more as I got ready, and climbed into bed. Here you are, Madame Pince, I said, gingerly holding out persuasion to her with both hands. She straightened in her desk, looking at me with mild surprise, and took it from me. You didn't like it? Oh, I loved it, I countered. I finished it just last night. I couldn't put it down. Did the trace of a smile just flit across her face? I could not tell. She set it down and began flipping through the pages, inspecting each one. I also have a message from Professor Snape, I said. Hmm, Pint said, not looking up from the book. He told me to ask you to please reserve that book for Draco Malfoy. Pint's head shot up. Again? I swallowed. Yes, ma'am. Why? I shrugged. I don't know, ma'am, I said but Professor Snape says that he will take full responsibility if anything at all happens to the book. Madame Pince ground her teeth, but at last she nodded. Very well. Thank you, Miss Granger. Thank you, ma'am, I said, and I left the library, making certain to keep my footsteps very quiet, wincing at how easy it was becoming to lie to everyone. Trying to shake it off, I hurried to the Owlry to send a message to Draco, informing him that Professor Snape had reserved persuasion for him, and it was waiting for him in the library. My studies were just swallowing me. I cursed myself for being such a perfectionist and workaholic, but it was something about myself that I could not change, and so I just had to give my best effort and try to survive it. But it was getting very difficult. Harry was constantly depressed and moody, and I worried intensely for him. Ron was worried, too, which made him irritable. It hadn't been that long since I'd come out of the room, but it seemed like an eternity. The turmoil in this world, this reality, was smothering me. After a long day of studying in the library, and hardly completing anything, and missing dinner, I trudged down the middle of a long, dimly lit corridor, my arms full of books that I would spend all night trying to read. My hair was a mess, my clothes were crooked and dusty, and my arms were shaking with the effort of carrying this load. Besides this, my heart ached with its customary misery. I passed the thousands of portraits on either side of me, and heard them whisper and mutter as I walked by. I ignored them, as usual, and prayed for the strength to get all the way up to my room. A shadow moved near a corner up ahead. My footsteps slowed. I frowned at the long, tall shape, and then gritted my teeth as the shadow separated into two, one much shorter than, and fatter than the other. Crab and Goyle. They strolled up to me, leering at me, giving me half-witted grins. Look who it is, Goyle grunted. It's the little muggle know-it-all. I sighed and rolled my eyes, shifted my weight, adjusting my grasp on the bottom book. Don't either of you have anything better to do? Then what? Crab asked. Sprawling your books? They glanced at each other. Nope, they chorused. Don't you dare, I warned, stepping back. But Goya lunged forward and slapped my top book with all his strength. I tried to hold on, but all of the books wrenched out of my grip and splattered all over the stones, their pages crashing open. I heard a few bindings snap. Crab and Goyle exploded into ridiculous laughter. How dare you, I roared. These aren't my books. They're the libraries. 
Like I care, Goyle chortled. I hit him in the face. The slap rang all through the corridor. He stared at me wide-eyed, a red mark blooming on his sallow cheek. I gritted my teeth, bracing myself. But then Crab grabbed me from behind with a broad, meaty hands. He twisted my right arm behind my back and jerked it up. I yelped, pain shooting through my shoulder. Let go of me, I tried, but my breath caught as he jerked me again, making me stand up on my tiptoes. Goyle crowded in on me, pressing his ugly face close and baring his teeth. Who do you think you are touching me like that? He snarled. Filthy, cowardly mudblood. A dark, powerful form flashed toward him like the swirl of a cape. A fist struck his jaw. Goyle crashed to the floor, crab let go of me, letting out a bark of surprise. He staggered sideways, spinning around to see Draco Malfoy standing over Goyle, holding his right hand to his chest with his left. He was breathing hard and glaring down at his henchmen. Crab stood closer to Goyle's head, mouth gaping. Look what you did to me, Draco cried. You've broken my bloody hand. You, you punched him, Crab pointed limply at his fallen companion. You punched me, Goyle mumbled, feeling his jaw. Brilliant observation, Cretans, Draco snapped. Are your heads both full of sawdust? They stared blankly at him. Draco leaned closer to Crab. Are you trying to get expelled? He hissed. With all the important work we have to do here, you're sliding around in corridors like a couple of slugs, causing trouble with the girl who was every teacher's pet. You're lucky a professor didn't. A professor did, a deep, cold voice intoned. I whirled around to see a tall, wraith-like form striding down the hall toward us his long black robes billowing out behind him, his dark hair framing his narrow, pale face, his keen black eyes sweeping over the messy scene. He slowed to a stop and stood between Draco and me. Professor Snape glanced at each of us in turn, then arched an eyebrow at the pile of books all over the floor. That look alone was enough to turn all of us into solid ice. Mr. Crab, Mr. Goyle, Snape said, slow and deliberate. Five points each from Slytherin for breaking the binding of several books that are older than your grandparents. You will go to your house at once. They stood there, gaping at him. Now, he breathed. They leaped into action, almost smacking into each other, and trotted off like a couple of pigs down the corridor. Snape then took out his wand, waved it, and the books came up off the floor, stacking themselves, then sat in the air, hovering. Miss Granger, he said, turning to me. It appears that Mr. Malfoy has somehow injured himself. Please walk him to the hospital wing. Really, Professor, that isn't necessary, Draco started. It is not open for discussion, Mr. Malfoy, Snape warned. I will return these books to Madame Pince and make certain she knows who was responsible for their damage. If my heart hadn't been beating so fast, and if my shoulder hadn't been in so much pain, and if I hadn't been so astonished at Snape's fairness, I would have smirked. But then my eyes locked with Draco's and all other emotion faded. Be quick, Snape advised. Yes, sir, I said. Draco did not wait for me. He started walking. I bit my lip and followed. Miss Granger. I stared back to Snape. He hesitated, then frowned slightly. If you ever need assistance of that sort again, he said, then pointed upward with his wand, don't forget the portraits. I frowned, wondering, but he did not elaborate. He turned and strode silently back down the hall, the floating stack of books following him. I turned back around to see Draco walking on ahead, about to turn the corner. I broke into a trot and caught up to him, then fell right into step beside him. Neither of us spoke. 
The sound of our feet on the stones filled the silence. I stole glances at him when we passed Torchlight, trying to see his face. He was ashen, his jaw tight, dark circles under his eyes. He held his right hand close to him, with his left. I swallowed. I believed him now when he said a bone was broken. Does it hurt? I whispered. Yes, he said shortly. Just then, a group of Ravenclaws swung around another corner ahead of us, laughing and talking, heading toward their dormitories. I fell back and walked behind Draco, as if we were not together. They passed us without a second glance, their noise echoing up and down the hall. I sped up and walked next to Draco again, swallowing hard. He did not look at me. Gradually, all up and down nearby corridors, voices and footsteps began to ring. As people finished their dinner and started back to their common rooms or headed to the library, Still, nobody looked at us, because we didn't appear to be walking together. We had gotten tragically good at this charade. At least, I had. But now, each time I tried to catch his eye, it failed. Questions built inside my mind. Questions that settled with tight nausea in my stomach. How could he be so stoic when he was this close to me? Had his forced act penetrated deeper? Down into his character? Had he fallen back into his old habits? His old ways of thinking and acting? Had I lost him? My breath caught and my hand instinctively flew to my throat, and I gulped, then gulped again. He twitched, and his head came around and he glanced at me. I tried to meet his eyes, but he faced forward again. Pain plunged straight down my throat. Then, he slowed down. He didn't say anything, and he didn't look at me, but he walked closer beside me. Our shoulders were only a few inches apart. I glanced around, realizing we had passed into a relatively uninhabited portion of the castle. We turned and began to ascend the stairs to the hospital wing. We had gotten halfway up when Draco swooned and fell sideways against the banister. I lashed out and caught his left arm. He grunted sharply through his teeth, grimacing. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I whispered, panicked. It's not you, it's my hand, he muttered. I glanced down at it. It was very white and quivered. And then in places it wasted in deep blue and swollen. I secured my grip on him, sliding my arm underneath his so I could bear some of his weight. Come on, I encouraged. We're almost there. Come on. Much more slowly, for Draco looked as if he would faint if we sped up, we worked our way up the stairs and toward the great double doors of the medical wing. My brow tensed as I walked beside him, feeling him pressed against my side. Draco was stronger than this. Yes, a broken bone was extremely painful, but it would only cripple him like this if he had not been getting any sleep and had been doing a great deal of stressful work which was probably the case. But he could not talk to me about it, and so I gritted my teeth and kept my questions to myself. At last, we stopped in front of the doors, one which stood partially open. You can leave me here, Draco said quietly, his head still down, his eyes on the floor. I'll go in alone. Will you be okay? I asked. He snorted and smiled crookedly. I suppose. I came around in front of him, wanting to say something, tilting my head so I could see his face. He lifted his head and met my eyes. I saw no trace of a sneer, no irony or sarcasm or coldness, just dark circles around his eyes, dull weariness where light used to shine, and pain tightening his mouth. I wanted to say something, just one thing, actually, but I couldn't. The door was open, and Madame Pomfrey and who knows who else was inside the room right next to us. So very gently, I took hold of Draco's broken hand, and I pressed it to my lips. I felt his forehead lean against the top of my head for just a moment. Then I released him, backed up, and held the door open for him to walk through. He stepped in, then paused on the threshold. Oh, by the way, he said quietly, 
Professor Snape has reserved that book for you again. He told me to tell you. Thank you, I answered. He glanced up at me again, then stepped into the wing. I shut the door behind him and headed back to the library. Madame Pince came straight up to meet me as soon as I entered the doorway of the library. At first, stark dread shot through me, especially when her claw-like hand snatched up my wrist. But then I looked at her face, and nothing but concern and distress registered there. I heard about your mishap in the corridor, Miss Granger, she cried quietly, turning and pulling me back toward her desk in the corner of the room. Ghastly boys, simply monstrous. Oh, I very much agree, madam, I said, walking as fast as I could to keep up with her sharp steps. It will take a great deal of careful magic to repair these. She let go of me and gestured broadly to the four books laid out like patience and triage on her desk. She swung around her desk, her hands fluttering over the poor, broken bindings. She glanced briefly at me. I hear, though, that you and Mr. Malfoy put up quite a fight against those vandals. It took a moment for my mouth to work, but I finally nodded. Yes, I had my shoulder wrenched and Draco broke his hand. Ah, well, good for you. Trying to protect them. Pence sounded pleased, or proud, and sat down in her chair. I almost laughed, except I knew she was quite serious. In fact, she probably would have sacrificed a limb of her own for one of those books. I swallowed as that sank in, realizing that my chances for checking out yet another book was taking it out, and into these dangerous halls was probably nil at this point. Oh, I almost forgot. Miss Pince spun around and snatched up the first edition of Persuasion and held it out to me. Professor Snape reserved this for you again. Were you planning to read it twice? I, yes, I was, I stammered, taking it from her and wrapping it in my arms. Excellent, she said. And, well, after you're finished it again, it would only be courteous for you to come back and tell me what you thought of it. I gazed at her for a moment and saw just the faintest glimpse of vulnerability in those dark eyes. I almost smiled. The terrible Madame Pince wanted to chat with someone about Jane Austen. I certainly will, I promised. Also, several of my very studious bunkmates have expressed an interest in Pride and Prejudice as well. Perhaps there are a few newer, less fragile copies of that? Oh, I believe there are, Pince's eyes lit up. Yes, who are they? The girls interested. Ginny Weasley, Padma and Pavardi Patil. Ah, oh, yes, very good girls. Trustworthy girls, Pince decided. Yes, tell them that they can come check them out. And tell me what they think of it. I will. Thank you, madam, I answered, and with the book pressed close to my heart, I left the library. After saying goodnight to Harry, Ron, and Ginny, and getting into my nightclothes, I crawled up into my bed and shut the curtains around myself, then lit my wand. I set the copy of Persuasion out on my pillow, bit the inside of my cheek, pointed my wand at it, and whispered, Apparisium. Then, holding my wand over the old pages, I set to flipping through them, scanning the lines, knowing my time was limited before the green ink would fade back to invisibility. It took me a long time. I was in the midst of chapter 20 before I found it. But when I did, I had to cover my mouth with my hand and squeeze my eyes shut, as a potent mixture of joy, relief, and terrible longing filled up my chest. A man does not recover from such a devotion of the heart to such a woman. He ought not. He does not. That night I slept with that battered old copy of Persuasion tucked against my heart, and for the first time in a long time, I didn't cry into my pillow, but the pain I felt now was worse than before, and I wished I could cry. But if Draco could grit his teeth and get through this without breaking down, without flinching, then I could do the same. A man does not recover from such a devotion of the heart to such a woman. He ought not. He does not. <laughs>